This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. This week, Simon Phipps and I talk with Arun Gupta of Intel about how Intel is fostering open source culture involved in many ecosystems like the CNCF, for example, and other two, three, and four-letter acronyms. The Linux Foundation is a two-letter acronym. There are lots of these, and he's an athlete and an interesting guy. The whole thing is really cool. That's coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly, episode 720, recorded Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. Fostering an open source culture. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get the password manager that offers a robust and cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com twit. And by Collide. Collide is a device trust solution that ensures that if a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps. It's zero trust for Okta. Visit collide.com floss and book a demo today. Hello again, everybody. I am Doc Searles, and good morning, good evening, good whenever it is, or whatever it is, whenever, whatever you are. Uh, this is Floss Weekly, and I'm joined this week by Simon Phipps himself, Mr. Webb Mink. Um, Hello, Doc. I'm sitting here in my uh, in my upstairs office uh, in Southampton in the UK, yeah. and I see that you you are in your punishment dungeon in in somewhere in the middle <laughs> I, of the US. I'm still. I have been banished downstairs. So this is uh, this is my my office, also the furnace room, as it as it was in the last place I lived here. Um, but it's quite nice. It's it's roomy. Um, since we put rugs in, um, it's less roomy sounding on shows like this. So we're so we're good. So so. Our, our, our guest today, Arun Gupta, is um, is an old colleague of yours. Am I right about that? Uh, from the from the dark ages, uh, Arun worked in the Java team when I was uh, running the open source office at Sun Microsystems back uh, before most of our audience were born. I expect. Um, <laughs> so, well, you know, there there will be a few people I can see in the IRC maybe a little older than that. Um, so, yes, uh, he, he he worked on the Java evangelism team. Uh, back in the 2000s before moving on to uh, bigger and better things at Amazon and then uh, after that on to uh, Intel, where he is now. Um, so we have uh, no- we known each other and known of each other for many, many years. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I, so with that as a, a segue, I'm going to get into the intro. Arun Gupta is Vice President and GM of Open Ecosystems at Intel. He's been an open source strategist, advocate, and practitioner for nearly two decades, and is currently an elected chair of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF governing board, um, something I'm interested in, where he works with CNCF leadership and member companies to grow the cloud native ecosystem. Um, He's also delivered technical talks in over 45 countries, authored multiple books, holds two patents, and is a Docker captain, Java champion, and Java user group leader. So welcome, Arun, to the show. Thank you. I'm super excited and happy to be here. Thank you. So, so where in the world are you of those 45 plus countries you've? <laughs> yeah, uh, my home uh, for the last uh, about uh, quarter century is San Francisco Bay Area. So, one of you is in basement, one of you is in upstairs. I'm smack on the ground level, in between two of you, different part of the world. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I lived there for a long time myself. So. Um, I, I'm not even sure, sure sure where to start. So so why don't you just give us a, a sort of the overview on what Intel's doing with open source? I mean, it, you know, that's that's a big thing for them now. Um, Catherine Druckmann, one of our co-hosts, now works there. And um, so we're getting more and more connected, it seems, with Intel. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I don't think, well, first of all, let me qualify the statement. I don't think it's a big thing for Intel now. It has always been. Um, and honestly, when um, I chatted with Greg Lavender last year and we started talking about, like, as an outsider, I've always been in the open source industry for about two decades. 
you know, either on the practicing side, even on the evangelism side or the managing engineering side. But I had very little to realize how much Intel has been influencing open source over the two decades. And when I started talking to Greg and then I realized the opportunity of what Intel brings to open source just just blew my mind. I mean, just to give you an idea, we have 19,000 plus software engineers at Intel. People think of us as a silicon company. No, we have almost 20,000 software engineers here. Uh, we have been the founding members of Linux Foundation over 20 years ago. Uh, we are uh, not just that, but we are part of 700 plus open source foundations and standard bodies and in leadership positions, elected and paid membership in all possible places. Um, we uh, contribute heavily uh, to community-owned projects. I mean, if you think about CSPs, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, all of these CSPs, majority of their fleet is Intel platform. So what is in it for Intel to be engaged in open source? The primary reason really is we want to make sure that the open source projects because customers don't download open source projects. They download the distribution of an open source project so that they can buy support and they can have that comfort feeling that, okay, I'm using open source project. So Intel contributes to open source projects, OpenJDK, Kubernetes, Linux kernel, LLVM, GCC, PyTorch, TensorFlow. I mean, I can, the list goes on and on. We contribute to these projects in an upstream manner to ensure that these projects are fully optimized for internal platform across the board. You know, whether you are running in a CSP environment, whether you're running in a private cloud environment, web is a big part of it. Like, you know, Chrome and all of these projects. I mean, imagine how much activity in your laptop is done using a browser. And that's where Intel is heavily involved into optimizing the client flow of it. Similarly, on the networking side of it. You know, all the work that is happening on the networking side, on the VRAN side or on the edge side. So edge, client, compute, you name it, you know, across all of these domains, Intel is heavily contributing to the open source projects. We are one of the top 10 contributors to Kubernetes, cloud native ecosystem. We are one of the top contributors to OpenJDK. This is the most popular Java programming language. So that's sort of the impact that Intel brings we have been the top corporate contributor to Linux kernel for over 15 years in a row. And the reason is because this is what customers look at us that, hey, what, what value does Intel provide? This is the value that Intel provides. So uh, Arun, uh, Intel's been involved in, in these sorts of open source activities for a long time. I, I know a lot of people who uh, used to work for Intel and uh, on open source. A lot of them are lawyers. Um, how has the uh, open source landscape changed for Intel? I noticed that you, you've joined relatively recently on the global scale of things, and I, I, I suspect the strategy has changed. Um, so in what way has that changed, and how has that affected the way that you approach staffing for open source at Intel? Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about it, you know, a few years ago, Intel used to have this thing called as OTC, or Open Source Technology Center. Everything was kind of centralized in that one org. You know, all the most of the open source work was happening out of that org. Now, over the years, that strategy has definitely changed, where the engineering is kind of split and happening all across the BUs. Uh, there is a SADG, or as we call it, Software and Advanced Technologies Group, uh, which is led by uh, CTO, our CTO, Greg Lavender. So he leads that. That's where a lot of the software work happens. Then there is uh, networking uh, uh, BU, which is led by Sachin Kati. So a lot of the networking, all of the networking work happens over there. Then there is a client compute group. Then there is a data center group. The whole element of having that distributed strategy is that open source cannot have boundary conditions. Open source can happen anywhere and everywhere. And let it thrive and let it be successful in wherever it's happening in the BU. My role, um, and as you're right, you know, I joined Intel last year, April, so just about getting close to a year now. But my role, the role of my team as a VP and GM of Open Ecosystem is to really make sure 
that we are enabling all these teams to be successful. So as part of my team, for example, uh, I have the OSPO uh, office, you know, as part of OSPO, you know, we do all the usual OSPO things, make sure all inbound and outbound open source processes are in place, streamline compliance, etc. That happens. I have a team that, that is dedicated towards community and evangelism side of it. So um, things like KubeCon, things like Open Source Summit, those events are sponsored and executed out of my team, but we really tap into the engineering teams, like the different BUs that I talked about, we tap into their engineering knowledge and engineering prowess. How do we help shine that work? My team is surely executing the event, but how do we bring their work out from the open source realm and when I start highlighting those demos, you know, if uh, KubeCon is happening or Open Source Summit is happening or any other talk is, any other event is happening, how do we make sure we bring the right subject matter expert, we work with them to curate the talks, and then we help them with the submission at the event. So a lot of it is about enabling. Um, I have a part of the team that is also driving the broader open source strategy. So where we work with different BUs, like client, what is your open source strategy? Then data center, what is your open source strategy? So kind of work across different teams, kind of help them create that open source strategy and then make sure this is aligned with sort of the corporate strategy that my team kind of defines. Again, a lot of it is sort of very much in the spirit of open source ethos, where it's not like, oh, either you are aligned to this or not aligned to this. It's a very collaborative, very cross-functional way which is what makes actually Intel a very exciting place and a huge opportunity, honestly, which is what I'm really excited about to be here at Intel about. Right. So now I, I'm quite interested by the, the, the bigger picture of semiconductor companies in open source. I, I see some of Intel's uh, peers in the semiconductor industry taking a very different strategy towards open source. Um, uh, for example, one very large US semiconductor manufacturer focuses greatly on monetizing patent royalties and is somewhat opposed to open source because of that. Uh, how, does, how do you at Intel um, cope with the tension between the need to monetize patent royalties on the standards you implement and the need to engage fully in communities? Yeah, no, I think that's a very um, delicate question, actually. So the way we look at this is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Pat talks about how you know our strategy hasn't changed. Like since Pat came on board over two years ago, he made it very clear our strategy is about IDM 2.0, uh, our integrated device manufacturing 2.0. Earlier, we used to um, create our design and our manufacture our designs with IDM 2.0. We're saying we're going to keep doing that, but we will also allow others to bring their design in and then we can manufacture it. So you can think about it, how we are really trying to create a foundry model at Intel. And that's exactly where lies in your question that we can't really have that whole concept of, you know, oh, it is a IP and we should hold it back. Uh, but then again, there is a strong desire to monetize as well. So that's always a delicate balance uh, as opposed to kind of leaning one on either side of the pendulum heavily we always think of this as a very deliberate discussion that what is the opportunity cost here? What is the monetization element here? You know, is it right in the two, I mean, at Intel, it's very important that we are doing the right thing, you know, that uh, we are taking a high road here. You know, if this is the right thing to do for the open source, we go that route, we make it happen, and then we make it successful over there. So that's always a balance that we have to try, as opposed to an accidental decision, it's more of a deliberate decision within our framework. Right. So uh, CNCF had a great deal of focus on 5G and um, the the move by the mobile industry to invade the networking industry, as it were. Uh, is your focus on open source uh, giving you an advantage in that world, or is it placing you at a disadvantage compared with all of the other patent-heavy 5G vendors who are uh, working in that space? I don't think it puts us in any disadvantage actually at all. You know, I mean, we really believe that open source uh, makes it a leveled playground. Um, as a matter of fact, if you think about it, the moment you get into those walled gardens, 
then the innovation, the fun is fully defined and controlled by that particular vendor. And in that sense, Intel heavily believes in creating that level playing ground for across the board, where we want to make sure that, hey, we invest strategically in open ecosystem to create that level playing ground and have that horizontal market where truly the competition is the one that succeeds as opposed to saying, oh, here is, you know, driven by one particular vendor and now they can define how it needs to look like. We really want to truly break that wall garden model and provide that consistent um, framework where everybody is at free to compete, uh, truly based on meritocracy as opposed to because it's defined or controlled by one vendor. So I want to get into the uh, the CNCF since we're on the CNCF topic landscape. But first, I have to let people know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, at work, or on the go, and is trusted by millions. Even our very own Steve Gibson has switched over. With Bitwarden, you can securely store credentials across personal and business worlds. All of your data in your Bitwarden vault is end-to-end encrypted and not just your passwords. That's including URLs for all websites you have accounts for. Bitwarden doesn't track your data in the mobile apps, only crash reporting, and even that is removed in the F-Droid installation. Bitwarden is open source and invites anyone to review library implementations at any time on GitHub and also to review the Bitwarden privacy policies at bitwarden.com slash privacy. Protect your personal data and privacy with Bitwarden by adding security to your passwords with strong, randomly generated passwords for each account. Go a step further with the username generator and create unique usernames for each account as well, or even use any of the five integrated email alias services. Bitwarden offers email alias generation with simple login, Hanan Addy, Firefox Relay, FastMail, and now DuckDuckGo. These services will allow you to create a masked email address, one that you could use for only one website, for example, and forwards any emails to your primary email account. This keeps your main email address out of the databases of the services and sites you sign up for. Bitwarden is a must-need for your business. It's fully customizable and adapts to your business needs. Their team's organization option is $3 a month per user, and their enterprise organization plan is $5 a month per user. Share private data securely with coworkers across departments or the entire company. Individuals can use their basic free account forever for an unlimited number of passwords or upgrade anytime to their premium account for less than $1 a month. The family organization option gives up to six users premium features for only $3.33 a month. Bitwarden supports importing and migrating from many other programs too. At Twit, we are fans of password managers. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, or at work, and is trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan, or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. That's bitwarden.com slash twit. So Arun, uh, we were, um, I was at the, uh, the CNCF conference in San Jose a few years ago. I think the first one that they had, and I was surprised to find it was, at that time anyway, mostly a 5G conference. And two things that stood out for me there was first that distributed cloud was a thing I had not even considered before that. And so that's a huge thing. And, and, you know, we already have these uh, large clouds that are close to people that, that are run by Netflix and ones like that. But those are, these are run by the phone companies or released by the, I don't really know how they work except they want low latency to local clouds. And that was part of the idea. Um, Simon touched on that a little bit, I think. The other thing was the CNCF landscape. And, um, uh, and the CNCF landscape allows you to look at everybody who's involved in the CNCF and, and then click on different filters, like, for example, to show on, only the open source ones, which is the majority of them, actually. But it was a really entertaining and deep way to look at this. And 
very helpful to me as a reporter at the time, because uh, I was an editor for Linux Journal, writing about this. It was really quite interesting. And it's, it's still great to see, like four or five years later, that it's still a completely useful, a completely useful thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, I can't even talk about uh, how much CNCF has gained a foothold um, in every technology, every um, digital journey that we talk about to customers. You know, everybody and everybody. And I think a lot of customers have been doing sort of a digital modernization of their infrastructure. But what Docker Kubernetes gave them is a common compute language. And by those projects really coming to CNCF and then CNCF enabling, you know, bringing that non-vendor, what other vendor neutral, another vendor agnostic platform for everybody to talk in the same language, it truly brings that open source knowledge together. Where companies like, you know, Google, Microsoft, Intel, IBM, Amazon, all of these are collaborating together on making Kubernetes successful and yet they have a strong monetization opportunity because Kubernetes, the project on GitHub is just one element of it. You know, how do you operationalize it? How do you build a platform like Red Hat OpenShift, for example, by which you can say, oh, I'm writing a Java application. I just want to bring my Java application over there and operationalize this for me in the sense that when I do a Git push, automatically create a Docker file, you know, a Docker image, you know, a Kubernetes you know, container, Edit up and running. So all of that, you know, this is exactly where the CNCF broader landscape ecosystem kind of stands out well. Uh, I remember San Diego. This was, I guess, 2019, right before pandemic. This was the last KubeCon that we had. We had 16,000 people over there. And now we are looking to go back to Amsterdam. Um, last year was Detroit. Before that was Valencia. Before that was LA. And next, uh, in a couple of months, once we are looking to go back, go back to Amsterdam, we're looking at about 8,000 people in person that are going to attend KubeCon. Um, if you look in terms of diversity, inclusion, the number of projects that are coming through CNCF, you know, that are, uh, that are branding themselves. And, and it's not really cloud native washing. These projects are truly enabling how to be successful in the cloud native landscape. So I think that is, continues to grow just immensely. So, so I'm wondering if we look at the cloud native landscape on the left side, uh, in the left column, there's a set of filters. And one of them is for, as I mentioned earlier, is just for open source products, projects. And I'm wondering first, um, with that landscape and with those filters, have companies that would not have appeared previously among the open source, um, survivors of that filter moved over to that? In other words, have you enlarged has that been a recruiting tool to get people more involved in open source? Might be I think there always sell. comes a no, no. I think there always comes a tipping point where you know companies who are sitting on the fringe and they realize that hey, should I be getting involved in open source or not? And what is the monetization opportunity for me? Because end of the day, you know, you can't just run a company truly only based on open source. You got to have some sort of a monetization angle in order for that business to be sustainable. And I think in that sense, CNCF truly provided them the platform and the ecosystem is so large, so huge that everybody, you know, the pie is so big that everybody has an opportunity to actually truly build an open source business model. Given that projects like Kubernetes, Envoy, when you pick HCD, all of these projects are open source and there is a strong commercial opportunity. So I think if you pick a company that has only seeing CNCF as their monetization opportunity, it truly enabled them to that. Yeah, I, I can actually build a open source credible business, leveraging CNCF landscape, leveraging that ecosystem, speaking at the events, going to the Kubernetes community days, uh, tagging on to those Amazon EKS, Google GKE or Amazon AKS, because once you start tying in, then there are clear monetization opportunities and you can truly be successful in open source aspect as well. So I don't know if this is a relevant experience or not, but it's an interesting one. Um, uh, our apartment in New York, which I used to give this show from, is now occupied by my son and his girlfriend. And um, I noticed that on top of a pole across the street was a new device, a new thing that looked like a funnel at the top. And I thought, I wonder if that's 5G. I wonder if there's a new 5G thing. So 
Um, I have an old phone, but he has a new one, and his does 5G. And we have T-Mobile there, and um, and he tried it out, and he was getting 500 megabits down and like 300 up. And, of course, he went to, wow, that's cool. We can get rid of the cable. But where I went to it is, wow, what are what could be done with cloud? What could be done with many other things on the far side of that? Because the cable system, I mean, we're, we get 500 down on cable there, actually better than that um, in New York. It's still only 10 megabits up. And, um, but with 300 up, all kinds of other things are suddenly feeling possible. And I'm wondering if that's, if that's high on people's minds or is that on, in your mind or is it, is it part of it? How does that look in the plans of providers going forward? Not just Intel, but Intel's customers and Intel's partners uh, further up the stack. Um, because I, it's, it's amazing to me that in 2023, we still think what we can get from a cable company is what could, what we're going to get on the internet. And we've sort of forgotten the original purpose of the internet, which is to put everybody zero distance apart at almost zero cost with infinite capacities, both upstream and down, um, more in a point to point way. So, so t- tell me more about that. I see you nodding. So I know you're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, um, uh, you're spot on. I think the important part to understand though is, if we look at say seven, seven and a half billion population of the world, first of all, how much of them have internet fun? Second is, even if they have internet, how much percentage of that population truly have that 500 megabyte download, 300 megabyte upload? Um, even within US, as a matter of fact, right? I mean, your son happens to be right smack in front of the that, you know, device, maybe that looks like a 5G device. So maybe they are getting it. You know, I don't get that kind of a speed. And I'm smack in the San Francisco Bay Area. I don't get that level of speed on my phone, for example. So I think the first part that I always think about is how diverse, how um, inclusive it is across the board if I'm building my application. Maybe I'm building my applications specific to a customer segment, uh, which have that bandwidth, which is great. Because then you can do back and forth, back and forth discussion whatever video framing, whatever that requires that high bandwidth application, I can do it. But I'm always thinking in terms of how would this be more diverse? How could this be more inclusive? Um, What would my fallback option be? Like long back, we used to talk about that. Oh, if you're putting an image in your web page, you should have an alt graphic because what if your browser cannot display the image? You know, what would the alt text look like? So I think that's the mechanism that is important for customers to understand. Sure, you can, it does open up a lot of opportunities in the kind of applications that you can make, but what is your alt text if the, that, that bandwidth is not available? What is your fallback plan essentially if that bandwidth is not available? So I think that is an important element to think and understand. Um, the other point that I wanna I would make is, I think I kind of said this earlier, that kind of bandwidth is not prevalent across the world. In certain parts of the world, it is available, but if we say, I don't know, maybe 80, 85, 90% of the world does not have that kind of bandwidth. You know, forget about rural areas, you know, what kind of bandwidth they have, if at all any. So I think that's the part uh, that I always think about. You know, I remember thinking about that uh, uh, 20 years ago, and, and it's it's kind of disappointing we've made so little global progress on that subject. Uh, I remember back in the days with Sun going down to a uh, a telecentro in Brazil and uh, seeing how the only way people could get enough bandwidth to use the internet was to go to basically go to their local library uh, and use it there. Um, I, I wonder if there's anything we can do to accelerate that um, that global rollout of bandwidth availability. Uh, do you think there are any any new solutions on the horizon, Arun? I'm not deeply engaged in that part of the world, but I could definitely have somebody from Intel kind of provide that point of view. I would say um, if you go back, like, say, two or three years ago, uh, that revolution kind of started to happen where, you know, we were talking about that, oh, 5G is in- inevitable, it's coming up soon. But then, you know, these macro headwinds hit us hard. You know, pandemic happened, 
you know, you know the economy is sort of in a doldrums across the world. So I think um, that's a very cyclical pattern uh, in the industry. You know, I've been I've been through many of these downturns where things go up and down. So I think it's just a matter of what is the tipping point. When does the industry and the customers feel ready? Um, I mean, the example that I gave earlier, for example, was a lot of customers were doing um, container kind of environment, but Docker and Kubernetes truly were the tipping point, which really commoditized compute across you know these different industries. So I think that's the tipping point that I believe we are missing. That sure, if there is five G, we can build an application, but what is the killer application that is really going to make 5G successful is yet to be seen, in my opinion. Right. I, so, I, you know, I wonder with 5G whether the problem is more that 5G technology is so riddled with proprietary hooks that it is hugely expensive to roll out in, in, in uh, uh, low, um, low w- poorly funded economies uh, around the world. And I wonder whether the solution is more open and to do more open technologies lower in the stack rather than to try and promote 5G, which is riddled with ways for large corporations to extract taxes from small countries. Right. No, I mean, uh, open in that sense definitely helps uh, in, in there. But how do we bring more alliance around it? How do we bring more companies into the fold that this is truly the strategy. How do we make it successful? How do we ensure there is a value for everybody in the food chain, essentially, that the telecom operator, the customers, the end users, I think that's going to be the key. Uh, and open source is going to be sort of a beading uh, thread across all of those beads, essentially. Right. Now, actually, I, I do want to ask you, because it's it, we're getting close to 20 years since uh, the internal meetings at Sun that you may remember where people were saying that Java would be open source over their dead body. I, I don't I think it was actually over their dead body. I think that we offered to give them new jobs in other companies instead. Um, uh, do you think that the work that we did back then on making Java open source, was? do you think we did the right things? And do you think it's had the results that you expected? Or do you feel that Java has been sidelined in the move to the cloud? I would say, uh, and I was reading an article on this, funny you asked this question, I was reading an article on this literally a couple of days ago, and I was thinking about a 2006 timeframe where Rich Green, who was the vice president of Java software at that time, got up on the stage and says, we're gonna make Java open. And I remember how he talked about it, that the, for the last 15 years, we had, it's like my teenager, we have given him the right principles and now we are letting go to the college and this is how he saw how he correlated Java with. So I think I believe I fundamentally believe Java is far more successful by being in the open than it would have been if it was only a one vendor control. I mean, like we really started with creating that reference implementation, putting that TCK out there. Now look at Open JDK. You know, if it was Sun now Oracle, they don't have to worry about the optimizations, for example, that Intel does to open JDK because to make sure that Java stays relevant across all of these Intel platforms. Intel directly contributes to open JDK and then all the downstream vendors, whether it's Oracle JDK, whether it's Amazon Coretto, whether it's uh, Eclipse Adoptium, there are lots of different open source um, distributions of it or Azul, you know, they can all, they all benefit from that open ecosystem or open source distribution of OpenJDK. So I don't think Java would have been so wildly successful had it not been open sourced at that point of time. So I think there is definitely lessons to be learned in terms of what we do with Java and how it is compared to other, not just programming languages, but things like 5G and others that we're talking about. Right. So, you know, we, we, you and I both did uh, a lot of Java back in that decade, which was a long time ago now, back when my hair wasn't gray. Um, and uh, what do you think is the next bet? Because I, in the same concept space as Java, I now see uh, WebAssembly. I now see uh, Node.js. I, I still see Java. 
what do you think people should be betting on for the future? What is Intel betting on as the technology for the platform-independent web in the future? I don't think there is a single bet you know, in that sense. Like, you know, um, what is a single bet on where we could do everything? Um, Intel product and strategy is literally betting on our open ecosystem. As I talked about IDM 2.0, right? We are looking at how we could set up that foundry business model truly. And what that means is today, Intel has the capability to say, here is my design, here is how I'm gonna manufacture it. Now, keeping that truly open because it really relies upon an open ecosystem, we would love to see becoming that default foundry, which really is important for the global resilience and the global supply chain of this chip industry essentially. So we would like to extend that model where, and that's the, that's the very much clear intent for Intel is that how do we make IDM 2.0 very successful at Intel? So that it's not just Intel that is producing the design and manufacturing the design. Though we have that fab experience, how do we start bringing other partners that are that want to operate in a fabless manner where they can say, we can design it, we will manufacture it for you. So that has been the strategy since Pat came on board for Intel, and that truly relies upon an open ecosystem. Things like Risk Five, you know, that's that, that's like a big bet for Intel essentially, where we are hoping we can create the architecture, and then everybody can truly compete and compete, you know, by creating that standard and yet be able to create differentiation for them. So, um, I want to I want to ask about generative AI. I've been looking down your Twitter threads there, and you touched on that. And it's a huge topic right now. But first, I have to let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Collide. Collide is a device trust solution that ensures unsecured devices can't access your apps. Collide is some big news. If you're an Okta user, Collide can get your entire fleet up to 100% compliance. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Think about it. Your identity provider only lets known devices log into apps, but just because a device is known doesn't mean it's in a secure state. In fact, plenty of devices in your fleet probably shouldn't be trusted. Maybe they're running on out-of-date OS versions, or maybe they've got unencrypted credentials lying around. If a device isn't compliant or isn't running the Collide agent, it can't access the organization's SaaS apps or other resources. The device user can't log into your company's cloud apps until they fix the problem on their end. It's that simple. For example, a device will be blocked if an employee doesn't have an up-to-date browser. Using end-user remediation helps drive your fleet to 100% compliance without overwhelming your IT team. Without Collide, IT teams have no way to solve these compliance issues or stop insecure devices from logging in. With Collide, you can set and enforce compliance across your entire fleet, Mac, Windows, and Linux. Collide is unique in that it makes device compliance part of the authentication process. When a user logs in with Okta, Collide alerts them to compliance issues and prevents unsecured devices from logging in. It's security you can feel good about because Collide puts transparency and respect for users at the center of their product. To sum it up, Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. Visit collide.com slash floss to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash floss. So Arun, this morning, I actually spent a lot of time on DAO-E, on um, whatever the one is with Discord, um, uh, MidJourney, um, on some others I hadn't tried before that are freemium ones as well, um, to help uh, somebody create a, a cover for their new book um, because they, they're writing about stuff that's highly copyrighted and, and she can't use those. And so I was trying to come up with some things. Midjourney especially did an amazing job, and interestingly, that's a Discord. It is probably the closest to being an open source play. So, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this, where Intel is going with it, and it's still new. We're going to be downstream pretty far in a fairly short time. So, where's it all going? 
Yeah, I mean, um, if you think about generative AI, what is this concept of generative? It basically describes the algorithms that are used to create data that can resemble human-generated content. Whether it's audio, text, images, text, simulation, videos, doesn't matter, all across the board. But it's really leveraging that, you know, creating that human uh, resemblance uh, to the generated content. And it's not new. You know, it's, if you think about it, it's a tech that really created voice assistants, you know, uh, infinitely evolving games and chatbots. So this technology has always existed. And Intel's goal really is to support all AI models, including generative AI. You know, uh, of course, we want to do that in the most responsible manner with the responsible perspectives and principles. So I think that's the important element, first of all, to think about it. The second part of it is, when you think about creating this generative AI model, um, you need lots of productivity, lots of scale, you know, and good enough performance for AI workloads with commonly available software and hardware. And if you think about it, if you want to run that kind of a model, lots of productivity, lots of scale with commonly available software, PyTorch, TensorFlow, whatever these softwares are, Xeon, you know, uh, we have 100 million plus instances spread across the world, across cloud providers, across private data centers, across networking, you know, across client, you know, you name it. There are so many instances spread across the world. And that's where we go back to the philosophy that I mentioned earlier that Intel contributes to frameworks like PyTorch, TensorFlow, and other frameworks, Scikit, Modin, you pick a framework, by which you will leverage for generative AI. And we optimize them so that you can run them in the most optimal manner on the most widely available hardware that is available to you. So I think that's the critical element that you want to understand about it, that why this matters, first of all. Now, what are some of the things that we do, particularly on the in the span of uh, generative AI? Um, we have done generative models for deep fakes that aim to impersonate people, basically. So that's one of the examples that I can talk about. So for example, um, our deep fake uh, detection algorithm is integrated into our real-time platform called as Fake Catcher. Uh, the, um, it basically can detect fake videos with 96% accuracy rate. That's one of the elements that I wanna talk about. Um, and it should not be just to prevent harm, but also enhance lives. So for example, um, there is a project that's going on, which is about speech synthesis project that enables people who have lost their voices to talk again. This technology is used in Intel's I Will Always Be Me digital storybook. So um, Doc, as you were talking about, I recommend you to take a look at that uh, digital storybook as well. And this is truly done in, in partnership with Dell, Rolls-Royce, um, and Motor Neuron Disease Association. You know, So the work that is happening over there. Uh, then, in addition, uh, we have um, Trusted Media Research Team is also working on using generative AI to make 3D experiences more realistic. Uh, for example, Intel's CARLA, um, CARLA is an acronym, is an open source urban driving simulator developed to support the development, training, and validation of autonomous driving systems. So all, all across the board, if you think about it, generative AI is a name that has come up but Intel has been deeply involved providing that optimal frameworks, the large amount of fleet that you need to run this at scale um, and do this in the most res um, responsible perspective and principle manner. So I think that's sort of been the Intel strategy all along um, as we think about um, this. Well, I was, <laughs> I was just trying to patch, Car I found Carla, C-A-R-L-A, an open source driving simulator um, into our chat, <laughs> so we can. So, but um, that is really interesting, and um, and I'm wondering if this goes to um, combining human and uh, device intelligence in driving. Um, what we have so far, I mean, I, I've always driven old cars. I'm an old. Um, shade tree mechanic, you might say, because I drove, a, when I was poor, I drove a lot of lousy cars and learned how to fix them. Um, but we have like a, a 2020 Toyota, the top model Camry, 
It has over 100 completely vexing and, and crazy uh, icons and two, three, and four-letter acronyms that drive my wife crazy and drive me crazy, too, and I'm the technical one. And, <laughs> but, I, but I think that there's, um, you know, the, the debate about Tesla and self-driving cars is, I think, a, a weird thing because I, I don't want uh, – I think most drivers who want to drive want a kind of combination of the two in a way. You want something – I mean, I love the um, – rear collision detecting thing. Like you're backing out, like we're backing the Camry out between two giant SUVs or vans. I'm not seeing the kid running by behind me and it hits the brakes automatically, right? That's a good thing. But it seems to me this is like a really low level of intelligence. And maybe with Carla and stuff like that, that we're we're moving towards something that's a bit more intelligent on both sides where the two forms of intelligence can dance knowing what the other is going to do you know, and how the other is going to help. Do you see hope for that? Well, um, if somebody would have predicted that generative AI would be a thing in three years, um, I think they would be lying. Uh, Chad GPT truly kind of created that terminology. Um, I mean, that concept has been happening, but the way it's called as generative AI is becoming more and more prominent now. So I think it's anybody's guess. But, you know, as I said earlier, um, Intel really sees its role in providing that optimal framework, optimal uh, set of hardware uh, in the widest range possible for developers to be successful, make sure their workflows are fully optimized, um, and where it goes. And I, um, I think um, Simon would recognize this. You know, uh, At Sun, we used to say, innovation happens elsewhere. We just provide a platform for others to be successful on that. So waiting for Simon, but <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. I, well, I I, I can fill is. in that quote. That 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 quote was actually from Bill Joy, who uh, observed <laughs> that um, that you can't hire all the smart people, and uh, that one one of the one of the great strengths of open source is that uh, the uh, by using open source you get to um, leverage the skills of people who don't work for you, who are probably smarter than you are. And uh, so, the, you know, one of the key things in putting together an effective open source strategy is to uh, hold your IP lightly in your hands and embrace smart people who are elsewhere, not create walls so that they can't contribute to you. And so that, that was where, really where that, that quote comes from. And I, you know, I, I see us as having a, a challenge with that in the area of AI. Because I see, um, first of all, uh, the way that AI works being sufficiently opaque that it's very difficult for a, a crowd of people to um, participate in it. And secondly, unfortunately, it's being uh, patented all the way to hell uh, so that it's going to be very difficult for innovators to move in and not feel that they're going to be attacked as soon as they get in there. Uh, and I feel that as an open source community, we haven't done enough to make sure that AI can benefit from that open effect. Uh, do you think, Aaron, that there is anything we can do as an open source community to create open source AI as opposed to uh, the, the, the rather poor attempts, unfortunately, that are happening with AI at the moment, where the name open source is being applied to things that are ultimately proprietary or restrictive? Well, there's a, um, there's a lot of good work happening in LF, AI, and data, which is a child foundation of Linux Foundation, essentially. So um, a lot of the projects moving over there, really truly providing vendor-neutral governance, um, meritocracy-based model, which is what the developers are used to, where truly, you know, you are sending a pull request, and then, you know, you're truly collaborating, as you said, innovation happens elsewhere, where all these smart people are really truly working together. So I think that's a good step in the right direction, in my opinion. I really hope and wish, like, I mean, um, PyTorch, you know, creating its own foundation, essentially, you know, giving away the control by Meta, you know, over here. I think those are the sort of the right steps, essentially, which truly is moving into the right direction. So I would I would not say that all hope is lost, uh, but there is definitely steps in the right direction. Uh, can we do more aggressively? Absolutely, we can do it more and more. Um, I think, and that's what uh, keeps the fire alive for me personally. 
Right, right. Now, one of the other things that is going on that, that fascinates me, and I assume ought to fascinate Intel, is the idea of um, of uh, putting technology inside human beings. And uh, we've heard um, Mr. Musk talking about the idea of putting chips inside people. Uh, do you think that that's going to be a business Intel's going to get into? Is um, wiring people up with uh, semiconductors so that they can run open source in their bodies? Uh, I cannot comment upon any of the future plans of our products. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how I would subscribe to that personally. You know, if this thing becomes a reality, would I put a chip in my body, for example? I don't know that yet. Yeah, it's pretty scary to me. You know, this 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 whole thing with uh, uh, with AI and with uh, Im uh, embedded uh, biological semiconductors and so on, it's all very final. It's decisions are being made that it's very hard to review. And I, I think that that's the, the big change that concerns me most. You know, the, there's the little bit of me that's very excited about technology in the future and wants to play with new things. And then there's the part of me that worries that those new things, that other people are playing with those new, new things, and they're using them to, um, to decide how long people should go to prison for. And uh, they're using them to decide uh, what color of skin people are going to have to have to get through immigration and uh, whether you can detect what gender people are from looking at their photographs. Uh, and all these technologies are being used for those things as well. Um, how, how does Intel feel about these uh, ethical considerations, which have been a big topic of discussion in, in open source? Do you feel that we need to embed uh, you know, that we need a, a range of ethical open source licenses, for example. No, absolutely. I think this is super important, you know, like with any technology, you know, not just the one that is created by Intel, but any technology, you know, there is always people who will find unethical uses of it and they will put it to uh, unethical usage. Um, but Intel has a team dedicated towards ethical AI particularly. So I think it might be important, might be relevant if we bring like some of those folks up here on the podcast and have them talk about ethical AI part of it. So I think, uh, no, I mean, uh, Intel truly believes that whatever is in our capacity and uh, ability, we will stop uh, people from using it in the wrong manner uh, and we build the right guards for that accordingly. I have a, uh, a question about... Um... Oh, by the way, if you have any guests you want to send us on ethical AI or any other topics, please do. Uh, we're always yeah. short on guests because we have an infinite amount of Wednesdays to fill in the future. Um, sure. uh, but I want to ask about the, the Linux Foundation. A, a, a bigger and bigger, I mean, I think at the beginning, Linux Journal, which I worked for for 23 years, was possibly the first institutional wrapper, as it were, for Linux back in 1994 when Linux arrived at 1.0. Um, and now the Linux Foundation is not just for Linux, but of course for all of open source. Um, but it's a, it's a business, um, uh, society, I, su I suppose, primarily it's comprised of businesses. They get together and it's a wonderful place, kind of a United Nations of businesses. And, and we've had a lot of people on from, from the LF. And I just got involved with the LF in a new way because, uh, for Customer Commons, a nonprofit that I'm on the board of and helped found just joined the Open Wallet Foundation because there are now dozens and dozens of foundations within a foundation called the Linux Foundation. And so that in itself is like ecosystems within ecosystems that are also part of um, decentralized ecosystems of many kinds that ideally are a mesh of corporate interests and personal interests in producing open code that's good for everybody. And so I'm wondering how that looks to you, because you're pretty highly involved in it at this point, I suppose, the CNCF and other things. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm quite deeply involved with uh, several LF bodies. For example, uh, my boss, uh, she is the member, she's a LF board of director for Intel, and I'm the alternate. So I attend the LF board meetings as well. Uh, I'm the governing board chair for the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Um, and funny enough, I have represented CNCF through three companies, actually. You know, I made Amazon join CNCF. That was my first gig. Uh, and I was the governing board rep for them. Uh, then my previous gig was Apple. So I was the governing board rep for Apple at CNCF. And now at Intel, I'm the governing board rep. So I've been involved with them for about 
six years now almost. Um, I'm also the governing board rep for Open Source Security Foundation and are deeply involved over there as well in kind of bringing our efforts together overall as well. So, no, you're absolutely right. I think LF is, LF truly provides that vendor agnostic playground. You know, if you want to bring a foundation there, if you want to bring projects over there, if you want to create a new foundation, it has that IT support that you need, which you don't have to worry about. You know, where if you want to run an open source project truly in a vendor agnostic manner, who is going to do your CLA? If you want to do the CLA or a DCO, who's going to do the validation? Who's going to set up your infrastructure behind the scene? Who's going to provide the marketing behind the scene for you? So with a project really coming to LF, either to a foundation or as a foundation to the LF itself, you get all of that support behind the scene that truly allows you to focus on the technicalities of the project because most of the time, if you are the lead maintainer or the contributor, that's what you want to focus on as opposed to the other elements of it. So I think in that sense, LF truly provides that breeding ground of all of these open source projects. And I'm not saying LF is the only one, there are other models as well. So it's not the one size fits all model, it really works uh, across the board. That's terrific. Um, I, uh, at his trade association, I was just reminded that's what, that's what it is, just so we have that straight. Um, we're really close to the end of the show, and this is where we ask you if you, is any, if there are any questions we haven't asked you'd like to answer briefly before we go and ask the final. One question. Uh, no, I think you covered it very well, actually. I'm, um, I would say I'm super excited, super happy to be here at Intel because uh, I think it's a great opportunity uh, for the company to be invested into open ecosystem. You know, I'm, I truly believe in terms of how Pat and Greg are turning the company around. For me personally, it's a huge opportunity to build that open ecosystem story across the board and work with wonderful people like you and others in the industry to tell our story. And I really see my role as a chief storytelling officer on why Intel contributing to open source. How is it contributing to open source? And is what it's not just what is in it for Intel, it is what is in it for the customers, what is in it for the developers, for them to be successful, why Intel should keep contributing to open source, I think is the most exciting part for me. Wow, that's exciting. And, and I love your excitement. I, clearly, you're happy to work there, and they are very privileged, privileged to have you. We always close with two, two quick questions, um, which are, what are your favorite text editor and scripting language? <laughs> um, uh, I, um, let's see, uh, VI. VI is going to be my, my editor, not Emacs, but VI, for <laughs> sure. I've used VI for the longest time. Um, and in terms of the scripting language, I would say maybe more like Python, you know, is my favorite scripting language. You know, um, I am not a deep Python developer, but I'll just, I can fiddle around with Python though. <laughs> we got a ring there from, from one of the channels. <laughs> I guess that's approving of, of Python. Well, it has been fabulous having you on the show, Arun, and uh, uh, we'll have to have you back. Good things will happen in the meantime. And uh, and send us more guests. <laughs> Thank you. I will. No, I think there are a lot You're of people. Very well I can... connected, and I, I'm sure. Yeah, you no, I think that there are lots of people who would love to be on this show. Um, I'm deeply connected in the industry, so let's talk offline. Uh, and yeah. thank you for the opportunity. I'm super happy to be here as well. Yeah, and, uh, and and us too. Thanks a lot for being here. Thank you. See you soon. So, Simon, that was good. Was that your bell that I heard? No, it wasn't my bell. <laughs> Somebody else's bell. <laughs> uh, I thought he was going to say net beans, honestly, but you know, there we go. It, it, um, it sounded a little bit like the, like the one on the counter at the hotel. You that know, was my <laughs> bill of approval for the Python. Oh. I, I have, ah, there we go. I have the bill of approval and I've decided that you know, whenever we get Python <laughs> and stuff like that, we're going to give those a good old yeah, ding. That was the fourth wall being breached, Doc. I, I there we go. I, I, I wish we we could have Guido on the show. We've asked him before, but he's very retired. It turns out, young guy, and he doesn't want to wants to get out of the fray. Um, hey, re retiring now. There's an idea, Doc. We should both try it sometime. <laughs> uh, so yeah, That's Intel. Right. Uh, you know, it's a fascinating <laughs> bit of bit of the industry. I, I deal a lot with um, um, uh, patent hungry semiconductor companies, and Intel is one of the friendliest of the semiconductor companies when it comes to open source in the general 
melee of uh, of um, uh, uh, creating systemic effects to advantage companies that you see, because uh, Intel's very much in that area of creating systemic effects rather than creating direct effects to advantage their company, and I think that's that's why they are actually so so comfortable with doing open sources because they understand the idea that if you create markets and you create environments that feed your business model, your business succeeds. So I, I wasn't overwhelmingly surprised to hear the things that Arun had to say because they, they all kind of fit mm-hmm. the uh, the general ethos. So Arun, you might not know this, but I, I was involved with Sun during the Spark period and uh, evangelizing Spark and tried to hold together the collection of really unfriendly companies that were that, yeah. that Sun had recruited to participate in the Spark project, which is an awful lot of fun, and it was, and it was also in in just pre Linux time uh, when uh, everybody was trying to duplicate or an SVR four it was at that time from AT yeah. and uh, yeah. um, and and uh, and BSD hadn't taken off with it was a real interesting mm-hmm. time. It was also when I was stuck in an airport with Bill Joy. For an afternoon, <laughs> and it, and that was one of the most entertaining and interesting afternoons I've ever said I've ever spent. I can imagine, I can imagine. Well, I think uh, I, I I should have quoted this in the podcast itself. It is freaking cool to work for a company where I don't have to explain the value proposition of open source either to my CTO or to my CEO. It's just amazing. Wow. Yeah, I mean That's they a- they inherently get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I've always thought from the beginning, before we called it that, open source wasn't widely used until 1998. Um, before that, it was all free software, but it would seem, it seemed to me that the basic tenets of it are what we operate language on. It's what we operate, you know, affections on, clubs, whatever, you know, right. wherever people are gathered, open source of, of a kind is at work. And yeah. it's what we have in common with each other. Yeah. And um, and it has to do with what we create as well. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, every time I talk to Greg, you know, like we were reviewing our OKRs with him a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, oh, this is so music to my ears that everything that you're doing in terms of bringing open ecosystem strategy, et cetera, et cetera. He was all excited. And it's like, when you see that level of excitement from your CTO and your CEO, it's like, oh, I'm at the right place because then See, I mean, I'm not afraid of climbing long uphill runs. You know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a trail runner, I mean, so that's the given for me. But what makes it difficult is when you have so many pebbles in your shoe, that is difficult to run. Mm-hmm. And at Intel, I always see that, okay, my boss or her boss, who is a CTO, they're always looking for ways, let me take those pebbles out for you so that you can run more effectively. And that makes the uphill run so much more enjoyable, so much more rewarding, so much more pleasurable. So I, I I see from your from your Twitter thing you not only run but you lift, which I think Ant does too. And um, are are you still uh, lifting for fun and the rest? I am. Of it? I am. Yeah, I have a full garage in my gym. I have a rogue power cage, uh, barbell, all sorts of weights, jump box, battle ropes, all sorts. Wow. Some gear in my garage. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. Oh, look at that. See, yes. Oh, yeah, I see that. I see that. <laughs> you know, when I saw that background, I was kind of wondering that that looks like a power cage, but I'm not sure what is that being in the background there. <laughs> That's a, my, mine is not. There's probably, there ought to be, in my background here, there ought to be. Yeah. I mean, when I was a teenager, and Ed has heard me on this before, I mean, I, 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 the only time I ever lifted in my life with any seriousness was when I was 15 turning 16 and I, I'd barely cleared puberty at that time. I don't sure I was on <laughs> it. And I, and I, and I went from like 113 to 125. And at the end of it, I could, I could clean jerk and bench press 125. And, right, right. and that was, that was, that's like five times what I could do now. Right. Yeah, I yeah. suppose. But you, you've got me tempted. I, I said, we have another, area back here where I could possibly put some stuff. We'll see. No, I'm, I'm like, um, honestly, this morning was the first morning I did not work out um, uh, in the morning. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I work out every day. Um, and the reason I did not work out this morning is because I wasn't feeling well. I'm glad the recording went successful. Uh, but otherwise, I typically work out for an hour every day, either a run or a lift. You know, one of those things happen in the morning. 
because that's what gets my energy and blood flowing for the rest of the day. That's fantastic. And uh, <laughs> you have any additional thoughts on that, Ant? Because <laughs> do, you, do you run every morning? I don't even know, Ant. <laughs> I, I absolutely hate cardio. Absolutely hate cardio, but, <laughs> but it, it is a must. So I will walk re- quite regularly, but I hate cat cardio with a passion. But much respect to you, Mr. Gupta. All right. No, no, I'm good. Man. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have our own things, you know. Whatever gets us in the zone, I think is important. And over the years, I mean, I've never been a lifter. You know, I've started lifting for the last three, four years, five years only now. Um, and, uh, honestly, I was a runner for a very, I mean, I've been runner for almost 40 years now. Uh, but I was trying to qualify for Boston marathon. I could not. And then my wife pushed me to start lifting because that is a fundamental element to be a stronger runner. And once I got into lifting, once I joined a gym back in 2018 is when I qualified for Boston marathon and I ended up running the Boston marathon in 2019. And then I got completely hooked onto it. I decided buying a gym for me, a full-blown rogue power cage, the whole deal in my garage. So r- really keeps me happy. Like, you know, in between meetings, you know, if, even if there are five minutes, I'll just go do like, you know, 10 pull-ups you know, and a few bench presses and boom, you know, back to the meeting. So <laughs> we've gone long with the show and I didn't end it properly when I was supposed to end it and it's okay. Um, so I'm going to go back to Simon because we need him to do his plugs. We always do plugs here. And uh, so Simon, what do you, what do you got? And uh, you know, I'm very, very light on plugs at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 right at the moment, I, I mentioned to Arun at the beginning of the show, I'm spending all of my time dealing with some legislation that's happening in Europe with, that could have a significant effect on open source. And so if you want to find out about that, uh, you will need to uh, have a look at my uh, blog. My blog has moved since the last time you saw it. Uh, it is now at the.webmink with a dot between the M and the I. And uh, uh-huh. you'll find all of the comments that I've made about the Cyber Resilience Act and more happening there. And uh, you'll note that my at webmink uh, social media address is now on Mastodon. And, and I would welcome followers on Mastodon. In terms of conferences, uh, really, I, I'm, I am not even putting in uh, a call for paper applications anymore. Life is far too busy to go and do that. Uh, plug-wise, that's all I've got, Doc. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, plug-wise, um, I should note that next week we have uh, Joachim Lokamp. He's with uh, Jolocom, J-O-L-O-C-O-M. Dot io, interesting outfit. Um, I was at his wedding last summer, actually, <laughs> and took pictures of it for him. Uh, and that was um, that was at D Web Camp, which is also an interesting thing. And we'll probably even talk about that. That's coming up next week. So we will see you then. I'm Doc Searles. This is Floss Weekly, and next time. Hey, folks. I'm Ant Pruitt. And I have a question for you. How do you think your hardworking team? With a Club Twit corporate subscription plan, of course. Show your appreciation and reward your tech team with a subscription to Club Twit. Keep everyone informed and entertained with podcasts covering the latest in tech. With a Club Twit subscription, they get access to all of our podcasts ad free. And they also get access to our members only Discord, uh, access to exclusive outtakes and behind the scenes footage, and special content like the fireside chats that I enjoy hosting. Plus, they also get shows like Hands on Mac, Hands on Windows, and the Untitled Linux Show. So, go to twit.tv slash club twit and look for corporate plans for complete details.